0: Welcome to the History of Networking, where we drag all the skeletons out of the wiring closet and ponder the ghosts of protocols past. Today, we are talking to David Clark about the early history of the internet. So grab a pile of cookies, settle in, and listen as we meld with the finest minds in networking. Good morning, Donald. You're at the blank wall this morning, which means you're at work. No frogs no, no, frogs, and no guitars. And, and no, no bike. bike. And right. no bike. I know. We're, we're going to miss all those. So good morning, David. Good, glad that you could join us this morning for History of Networking. So I think it's always best and easiest just to start at the very beginning and uh, talk about how you got involved in this crazy world of network engineering and stuff like that.
1: Well, I got my PhD at MIT in 1973, which was a fortuitous time because that's exactly when the paper by Bob and Kahn came out. And in fact, my my PhD, which I did at MIT, was was how to uh was part of the work we were doing building a multi-level secure operating system called Multics. And we were working really hard to build a system that could run multiple levels of classified code and that meant that all the code had to be audited and my thesis supervisor said, well, can you take all the I.O. system and throw it out of the kernel so we don't have to audit it? Does it have to run in protected mode? And I, I did all that, which was one of these sort of grungy jobs. But I sorted out that while you could take the tape driver out, the printer driver out, you couldn't take the network driver out. There was something special about networking. I didn't quite understand what it was, but I got curious about it. And when I got my Ph.D., my supervisor gave me the job of uh, working for him, supervising the team that was building... At the time, the NCP for Multics, the the Arpanet code, <laughs> and uh, I worked on that for a couple of years, and then TCP emerged, and Vint began pulling together this team of people that was going to implement TCP and IP on various machines, and I was the guy that was that did TCP for Multics. Multics, of course, was not a commercial success for a variety of reasons we could talk about, although that's a little bit of a digression. We're we're proud of the fact that 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 Multics spun off Unix and so I'll say okay fine what the hell we we had some success you know the guys at Bell Labs blew out of the Multics project and built Unix in frustration so I started out as an implementer I wrote all the TCP for Multics and of course the system wasn't well suited for that kind of thing so all kinds of practical implementation issues and that's what we did during the 1970s you know it was this team of people working for vent that uh, did TCP for various machines and we'd get together periodically and try to get our code to interoperate we had we had parties we called bake-offs and people would bring their code and they'd try to run the code against each other and if the code didn't interoperate then we'd say well is it a bug in the implementation or is the spec imperfect and we go back and we fix the spec or we'd fix the code and god i want to tell you how many times we iterated on the description in the tcp spec of how the checksum is computed we had more Boundary condition errors in that code, but we finally got it all right. And we think you had the spec, right? It's it's important to remember back then that People didn't actually believe you could write a specification a standard with enough precision that somebody could go off only with the spec and Write interoperable code. They said you'll never get all the details right You 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 really have to be part of the team and you have to be sitting in the room and you have to be asking questions so and by the way, wouldn't it be better if one company just built the internet? And we said, no, it wouldn't be better if one company built the internet. Uh, you know, one company ran the imps, and they basically said, that's the only way you could do it. And Vint was determined that this was going to be open system based on specification. So we spent a lot of time just trying to understand how to write a spec or how to write a protocol because we didn't know how to do it. There was no, there was no uh, history of how you would write a protocol specification. So that's, that's how I got into it, and that's what happened
0: in the 1970s. So, so it's actually interesting you say that, because even up until very, very, not recently, recently, but um, up until the 1990s, there was still a huge contingent of the ITF who believed that you couldn't really write a protocol specification. You know, when I first started writing drafts, that was something I was told is, you really, the draft is really just a guideline. You need to get everybody in the same room to do anything useful. So it's just interesting that you bring that up because I've encountered that before.
1: Isn't that just the nature of how communication worked before the 70s, how expensive it was?
0: Yeah, it could be. I don't know. It was just, it's just interesting. I, I don't
1: know about expensive. I, I mean, we were clearly dealing with implementation issues back then that would, that would uh, boggle you today. Uh, I mean, I did the first implementation of TCP and IP for the IBM PC. Did this in nineteen eighty two or three and that machine had 640 kilobytes of memory when i got i had to write a whole tcp and ip that fit in four kilobytes i have i've have gotten more grief about that code i did more ugly things to get that code to fit you know you're like, like you're not supposed to execute your constants and things like this you know so but when i got done i had room for one packet buffer right <laughs> you know? well you know packet buffers one and a half kilobytes I had 64 kilobytes I had the whole operating system and everything else and it, the apps and everything so the thing didn't perform very well because it was basically in lockstep. You send me a packet, I send you an ack. You send me a packet, I send you an ack. But you know, we the performance issues we were dealing with were were just horrendous. Uh, I, I I have something in my office. It's a wonderful artifact. When we built the first ARPANET interface for Multics, and it's a it's a big Augat board. Most people don't even know what that is these days. The guy who built it Rick Gumpers, was trying to debug the thing and the, the bits went slowly enough we could debug the interf- we could debug the interface by putting a, a paper trace paper tape trace on it and, and the ones <laughs> and zeros we could capture the ones and zeros on the paper. It was a fast machine had a fast response time i still have I still have little scrolls of paper which have ones and zeros on me. see what was going on but really the question was the precision and you know the truth is if you look at the history of TCP and the RFCs that have come out that give you implementation guidance the 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 idea is getting the correctness they didn't think i mean the criticism back then was you couldn't get the correctness right and uh, now of course the whole issue is about performance in the in the early 1980s i wrote uh 5 RFCs and they were sort of implementation guides and one of the earlier implementation guides and i I, I one of the things I had to write with her was an RFC about how to avoid what I called silly window syndrome. And I had to give it a name to get everybody's attention, but it was clear that there were some implementation strategies which had the peculiar effect that the longer your connection ran, the slower it got. And debugging that was really, really tricky. And if you if you put a checkpoint in your code and stopped your code so that you could look at something when you Got out of the checkpoint, if it got out quickly enough that the TCP was still running, the code ran fast again. So it had to do with timing and the dynamics of the two ends talking to each other. Right? So, so we realized that the first thing was just the complexity of the state machine, and people were just terrified of writing a state machine. The second thing was getting the correctness. And then then we fell into performance space and just getting it to go faster and getting all the systems to interoperate. And yeah, interoperate with respect to correctness was easy interoperate with respect to performance was harder. Yeah, there's still debates going on in the ITF. I mean, at the last ITF, there was some, there was some arguments about all the RFCs that describe aspects of the domain name system. And, and, and should we, should we deprecate some of them? Should we, you know, are they all consistent? And, uh, it's a continued battle, but, uh, I uh, I do think that the specification of TCP in terms of correctness still holds. If you wrote code and didn't understand all the performance issues, you know, cubic and all that kind of stuff, it certainly wouldn't run very fast. But it would run.
0: Uh, interesting, cool. So continue. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. That's
1: all right. That. No, it's a, it's an important digression because because again, people don't understand people don't understand what we didn't know in the 1970s. <laughs> yes, yeah, we I actually have. I actually have a, a little question. You mentioned that your first, one of the first things you did was pull in um, the I.O. subsystems out of Multics, and you couldn't pull the networking out. Why, why not? Because if you used a tape drive, the system allocated the tape drive to you, and then for the duration of the operation, it belonged to you. So all of the control code, you could pull it out. But, but the network is multiplexed on a packet layer. So when a packet comes in, you don't know who it belongs to until you look at it. And so there's two ways to solve that. And one of them is to put the entire TCP and IP stack down in the kernel, which is what we do today. The other thing you can do, which is, and I did it just as an experiment, is to slice and dice TCP and IP so that you pull the dispatching code out, put the dispatching code in the kernel, and then then you try to run the rest of IP and TCP in the process that's supposed to be receiving the packet. There are a lot of performance issues there which have to do with the cost of pro- crossing kernel boundaries and, and scheduling processes. And uh, the, the early some of the early... This is the era of microkernels, and they said, we'll just put everything in processes. And so that implementation strategy led to a, a module in which each layer was a process, and so every time you got a package, you had to schedule the IP process, then you had to schedule the, the TCP process, and I I, I had, a, again, I had an experience in, uh, uh, in the early 80s, I was at Ca- University of Cambridge, and they had a different operating system over there, they weren't you were running TCP and IP, but they had this really simple protocol suite, it didn't have dynamic timing or anything, it was beautiful, you know, full spec was four pages, and I said, oh great, I'm gonna go read the code and understand how this works, And I, they handed me this huge blob of code and i kept looking at the code and saying where's where's the where's the packet processing where's the process and i finally figured out that 95% of the code had to do with buffer management and uh, uh, the buffer management associated with crossing the process boundaries cuz you had to hand the buffers back and forth and so i said why don't we just put the whole thing in one thread and they said oh you can't do that because the calls are going up and you don't you don't go you know, the operating system never calls the app. And I said, let's try it. And I, I invented this idea of, called up calls. And I wrote a paper called up calls. <laughs> and, and the idea was the kernel was call, going to call the application. And you have to worry about the fact, you know, the kernel calls the application and the application crashes. That can't crash the kernel. So you've got to be able to clean the mess up cleanly. But the code got 10 times smaller and ran 10 times faster. And I said, aha. And I actually got some of that really router vendors to rewrite their, their code. So they didn't have process threads in them. And I said, look, did you actually count how many instructions it takes at the IP layer to process a packet once you've dispatched? Dispatch is the expensive thing out of here, which thread the packet belongs to. But it took fewer instructions to process the packet than it did to, to schedule a process. So I said, just process the damn packet because it takes less time. <laughs> now, I got into this huge fight with people about whether TCP was expensive or cheap. And uh, they said, oh, it's this incredible, complicated thing. I said, no, it's not complicated. And so I actually took the, at the time, the Unix implementation of of TCP, and we compiled it, and I got the assembler code out, and I actually counted the instructions in what you would call the fast path. I, I have the number. I forget what it is, but I think to process an incoming packet in the normal case took 237, you know, Intel instructions. I said, It's nothing. It's nothing. And I gave that paper to Van Jacobson. He said, "Oh, I can do it faster than that." And he got it down to fifty. That's not—we don't do that in the current production code. But but you know, we were we were just trying to make the point that this isn't complicated. (laughs) But but it but but it but it breaks every programming paradigm you have because people then were worshiping. Not only were they worshiping microkernels and 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 processes and threads, they were worshiping type safe languages. But, of course, when you get a packet, it's just a bag of bits, and they could be corrupted. You don't know what it is. And you have to take each of the fields in the packet, look at it, and say, is this sensible? And then and then coerce it into the type of the language. And you spend all your time coercing the variables. And there was another experiment I did which had to do with uh, printing. And we we had this idea that your machine should not crash if the other guy's machine screwed up. And I counted what percentage of the instructions were actually protecting you from the machine at the other end. And I said, if you were willing to crash when the other guy screwed up with it, <laughs> like the, the thing was, you know, one third the code. We, we had a very early example of, of what today is called fuzzing, in which Dave Mills took a TCP packet and he just turned on random bits in the packet to see what it would do to the other guy's TCP implementation. And as I said today, we'd call this fuzzing. And, and he invented this thing called a Christmas tree packet, in which every one of the control bits was on. Sin, fin, all these things. And most implementations just fell over. We said, okay, fine. We learned, we learned a lot about, about robustness here. So, you know, all these issues we were trying to work through in the early days that just had to do with what, what you really, as I say, we didn't know. How do you protect yourself from, from, a, from an implementation in another machine? You know, you sort of assume if your operating system crashes, well, the app is going to crash. You know, we invented we, we this term called fate sharing to, to talk about this idea. But I don't want to crash just because you're screwed up and, or malicious, okay, which is what we're dealing with today.
0: Yes, very interesting. So back to the origins of TCP, or back to where you were at this point with um, everybody trying to do it. And a single vendor and arguing yeah. against that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I guess really probably ought to go on to the 1980s at this point. We get to the ni- end of the 70s, we actually have the specs that get standardized in 1981. You know, John Postel edits these things up and we got them. Vint went off and went to MCI. I, he, I couldn't get him to tell me what he wanted to do, but he said, I'm going to MCI, I'm going to go to commercial for a while. and. We stopped having meetings of the whole. We started having network working group meetings and more and more people came and there was a meeting we had one day when a hundred people came and we said, that's it, we're out of control. So we created this smaller group and and Vint and I understood that if we created an inner circle, everybody would want to be in it. He he said, let's give it the most boring name we can think of. So we we called this group the Internet Configuration Control Board. And he said, nobody would want to be on a committee that's called the Configuration Control Board. And uh, he set this thing up, then after a while, we called it the Internet Activities Board. Now we've, 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 we've rebound the IAB to a different acronym, but we called it the Internet Activities Board. And he chaired that, and then he asked me to chair it for a while, and I chaired that through the 1980s. You know, the 1980s were a really interesting time because that's when we figured out how big the Internet was really going to be. And, and we were ambitious in the 1970s, but that was the era of timesharing. We really didn't understand even though we were, I mean, I had Xerox Altos at MIT, so I understood in principle about personal computers, but it wasn't until the IBM PC came out that we said, ooh, they're not going to be hundreds of thousands of computers. They're going to be hundreds of millions of computers. And there's actually, I like to, I like to challenge newbies in the field to say, okay, when is it that we, that we figured out that, you know, we really had a scaling problem and you can actually go back to the early eighties and find documents that talk about scaling and, of course, we called for IPv6 in 1991, but, you know, in the 19 in the 1980s, we really dealt with first the routing had to get big, so we made it hierarchical. Uh, we invented EGP, which is, of course, the predecessor of BGP. Uh, we realized that you couldn't name the hosts using a file that John Postel maintained on his computer every night. You know, machines <laughs> used to have names like, you know, MIT1, MIT2, ISI1, ISI2, SRI1. So John and and uh, Mike Petrus came up with the proposal for the domain name system, and we said, "Yeah, let's do that." So we made names hierarchical. We made routing. You know, computer scientists by reflex make bigger systems hierarchical. That's, that's that's the default strategy. So you know, we made the DNS hierarchical. We made the we made the the routing hierarchical, and then we started spinning up working groups to try to uh, have specialized conversations because we really couldn't have all the people in the same room. In the very first working group. Was was had to do with routing, and it was chaired by Dave Mills, and it was called GADS. Then there was a meeting when we realized that we really had to organize those into more of a structure, and so we created the ITF, and the working groups became part of the ITF, and then the chairman of the ITF sat ex officio on the IAB, and we and we began to create that structure, which of course has been formalized and and honed and and tuned up. But in some sense, if you look at what we did to the to the to the to the Meetings we made them hierarchical too because that's the that's the standard strategy, <laughs> and so really the 1980s, which is when I chaired the IAB, was was a period of getting big. the The transitions during that period. Oh, the other thing, of course, that happened in the 1980s. Well, several things that happened in the 1980s, but Van Jacobson got congestion under control, and and certainly in the mid 1980s, we had congestion problems on the internet that were simply horrible. They were just unbelievable and i and i think people don't remember how bad it was but part of what they don't remember is that we were still using the arpanet as the core of the internet and the arpanet was built out of 50 kilobit links and people usually say what i said yes 50 kilobit links right so you know how many packets a second can you get down that link <laughs> you know so
0: right which is unimaginable in today's world that's right you, know, you, you go back to the whole concept of being very, very efficient, not only with your code, but also with the way the protocols were built and, and yeah. how much bandwidth they used. Yeah. I,
1: we had a big fight, and, and I'm, I'm really sorry we lost it, because in the early 70s, some of us wanted to put longer addresses into the IP header, and some of us argued for variable-length addresses. And the guys who were implementing the routers said, absolutely impossible to process a longer address field at the speeds we have to go, and I said, "How fast are you going?" And he said, "Well, I've got to deal with this. They, they just discovered there were things called T1s, <laughs> which went one and a half megabits." And I said, "My God, you mean I'm going to get packets at one and a half megabits a second. And you know, this was just a terrifying thought. So, you know, pe- pe- people pe- pe- people really don't understand if you if you run Moore's law backwards what it was like back there, <laughs> you know. But uh, anyway, so 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 I think the end of the 80s is actually a good time to talk about because we were actually facing a number of severe challenges back there. Uh, and they weren't just implementation challenges. The, the OSI was saying we had no right to be designing protocols that, or the ISO was saying we had no, the, the ISO built this OSI, sorry, you know. But they basically say, you know, we're the anointed standards body, and and you guys are just upstarts, and 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 you have no authority. And we said we didn't think we had to have authority. We're just doing this, and they said, but but you're not official. And we said, yeah, that's right, but we're winning. <laughs> and so we had, to, we had we had OSI stalking us, but they weren't the only people stalking us. Uh, you know, there were still commercial protocol suites, uh, Xerox XNS and SNA and so forth that were. We're saying no. You know, we're we're corporate. we 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 know how to do this stuff for real, and we're trying to fight these people off. And the, the the international standards organization was really pushing the U.S. government hard to to abandon TCP in favor of of ISO OSI. And there was this famous event in 1992 where I was still on the IAB, but I wasn't chairing it when uh, they, they, they met as part of an IETF, uh, IETF meeting, they met in Kobe, and we knew that we needed another IP header because we needed bigger addresses, and, and the IAB took a decision that the next generation of the Internet protocol would be the one that had put, been put forward, the connectionless protocol that had been put forward by the as part of the OSI suite, that basically vent through the sponge in. And the IETF stood up and said to the IAB, you are the leaders to whom we will no longer listen. They put their fingers in their ears, ran in circles, saying, I'm not listening to you. And they basically used a lot of rude, rude words. And they said, if you're going to tell us to use the OSI, we're going to stop listening to you. Go away. And the IETF uh, repudiated the IAB, a, a total bottom-up revolt. I I was asked at the IETF meeting after this happened. It was a really interesting meeting. Vint came in and apologized profusely. Even took his vest off as a as a gesture of com, of contrition. <laughs> and uh, uh, and Phil Gross, who was running the IETF at the time, asked me if I would give a sort of a calming down talk. And I I gave a talk called "The Cloudy Crystal Ball." And uh, it's the slide. I still have the slide. The, the the caption at the bottom says alternative title: Apocalypse Now. And what I was really trying to say to the community is we had a lot of challenges facing us and we had to stop fighting internally and figure out how to set our own directions. And I, I pointed out that uh, one of the challenges we were facing, I think we sort of at that point had dismissed OSI, but we were dealing with ATM and the phone company had showed up and said, well, now we think it's time for a next generation of networking. So we're going to have to show you how to build it for real and and by the way atm can do things that that the internet protocols never can atm can carry phone calls and i was sort of put off by that statement uh, we also of course understood the morris worm had happened and so we understood we had issues of security and so i gave this talk in which i was trying to get people to focus on the fact that we needed to take some collective decisions in some cases we had trouble taking collective decisions and I, I I said something in that talk. It was actually sort of a throwaway line on one of my slides. I said, we reject King's presidents and voting. We believe in rough consensus and running code. And the important thing is I did not mean it as an unalloyed compliment. Because if you prophylactically kill your leaders, there are some situations where it's really hard to decide whether the best decision is to march north or march march south. And if you just go in circles for five years, which the IETF can do, there are problems that don't get solved. But they took this as a rallying cry. They loved it. Marshall Rose printed up 1,000 T-shirts. You know, T-shirts are not, when you print 1,000, that's not cheap. They said, we believe in Russ consensus and running Cody. hand. I still have one. And everybody said, oh, my God, yes, that's our mantra. And I was saying, wait a minute, it wasn't necessarily always a good thing. You didn't get the point. But, <laughs> but this was after they'd killed their leaders. I mean, you know, they really had just lynched the, the IAB. And so – I I basically said I'm gonna go do research for a while. And I said, I gotta we gotta fight off this this ATM thing. I said, we can add integrated services to the internet. It doesn't have to be best effort. And of course I, I irritated one third of the community by saying that. Um, you know, Steve Deering would never forgive me. But the the point was we could actually add packet handling algorithms to routers to to give certain application flows different kind of treatment. And the the, the, the telephone company had called the, the multi-service aspect of the ATM system integrated services. So I said, let's add integrated services to the internet. It was actually fairly complicated, but it's all standardized. InServe exists. And then we did a simpler thing called DiffSurf, And that was basically what I did in the first half of the, of the 90s. And then I had this horrible revelation, this, this moment. It was one of the sort of negative epiphany kind of things where – We'd gone through this commercial transition, of course. We turned off the NSF net basically because the commercial uh, providers of Internet service forced the government to get out of the business so they could get into the business. And the core of the Internet had become commercialized. So I went to Cisco and I said, you know, we got this cool inserve diff-serve stuff. You ought to put it in your router. And they said, well, we put stuff in a router when there's a customer. So find me a customer. I said, I have to find you a customer. He said, yeah, find me a customer. So I went to the largest of the ISPs, and I, and I talked to the CTO, and I said, hey, this, this diff search stuff is cool. You ought to turn it on in your network. And he said, no. Uh, well, it's a simple answer, but the wrong one. I said, why? And I got this wonderful sentence, and this, 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 this was just like this bucket of cold water. He said, why should I spend money turning on quality of service so that Bill Gates can make money selling Internet telephony for Windows? <laughs> and I said, ah, the, the IP layer, which is an open standard, is a money insulator. I, and I, I was talking to an economist. I've told this story lots of times, but I, I, might, I might as well because it was a formative story for me. But I'll tell it here and you can capture it. I was talking to an economist who understood the internet. And he said, Dave, he said, you got to understand the internet's about routing money, and routing packets is a side effect and you screwed up the money routing protocols. (laughs) And I said, I didn't design any money routing protocols. And he said, that's what I said. And I thought about the fact that, oh, think about Internet service providers. They spend all this money to put capacity in place, and, of course, they get paid, but then all the money gets made from running the apps. And it's very clear that the way we design the Internet, the app guys aren't supposed to have to pay except for their own connections. I mean, you know, if you're Netflix and you want to attach, well, you have to pay for that. But in some sense, there were two separate money layers. and I, I talked to economists and they said, oh, yes, this is, this is a well-understood situation and it will lead to, there's there are theories that make clear this will lead to underinvestment in the infrastructure and this is this is uh, open goods and con- they had all kinds of language to talk about this thing. So I figured the only thing I could do was to hire an economist, which I did. And my group became very multidisciplinary, and I started trying to understand the economics of this space, which is basically what I did in the second half of the 90s. But the other thing that when I was talking to the CTO, after he'd said, this is 1995, 1996, something like this, after he'd said, no, I'd never turn on QoS. And then he looked at me and he said, but if I did turn on QoS, why do you think I'd turn it on for anybody except me? Now, we didn't have the term network neutrality back then, but this is when I first realized that it wasn't necessarily in the business interests of the ISPs to be a neutral platform. And I said, oh, because, you know, we were all idealists, and, and when idealism runs into economics, very bad things happen, so... This, this, was, this was a transformative moment for me. And if you, if you look at my career from then on, it was less technical. It was more multidisciplinary. Uh, for a while, I had a political scientist that worked for me. Uh, I've collaborated with lawyers. And I'm really trying to understand how to, how to shape the future of the Internet when the technologists are not in charge. And it's, it's a complicated space to think about because those of us who are trained as computer scientists are not taught to think in that way. We're taught, basically, computer science as it's taught is an optimization discipline. You know, you, I, I say cynically about your SIGCOM paper that if the curve goes up, you get the paper in the, And no, that's not what's shaping the future of the internet. So, you know, we can talk about a bunch of other things, but that's, that's sort of the trajectory that, that got me through to the, to the sort of multidisciplinary kind of work I'm still doing today.
0: So that's really interesting because I think that even today, in even when you go to an enterprise network engineer, so to speak, which I don't really like the term enterprise, but anyway... Uh, When you go to an enterprise network engineer, their focus is on how do I optimize this problem? And you go to a vendor, and most vendors are going to say, well, I'm just trying to stick more knobs in and more stuff in so that we can optimize more problems. But in reality, we really don't think about the business side of the issue at all. We are very, very focused on that one one concept of doing... Uh, you know, trying to trying to optimize these problems and stuff, and not thinking about what does this do for the business. And so that's that's, I think, a very interesting.
1: I think it's a critical thing for people to understand. And when you think about some of the other dimensions, like security, uh, which which really is not an optimization problem. Well, you can you can try to map it into one, but you but you get these multidimensional constraints on what you're trying to do. And you know, in some sense, it is legitimate for an enterprise or an ISP to say, look, well, certainly if you're an enterprise networking is a cost center, right? So you obviously want to do it in an optimal way. And if you talk to Google about all the cost that they have wrung out of their internal network, they've done an amazing job of, of cost optimizing their network. That's fine. I think that's great. That That's that makes perfectly good sense, especially given the rate at which the, the demands on their capacity are growing. But, uh, I think this, the space is actually more complicated for the internet as a whole than it is for a given, a given operator.
0: So maybe it's worth going a little bit beyond the IAB. So you talked about how the IAB originated and then this, this, the origin of this concept of this t-shirt, which by the way is still worn at the IETF today. I still see it quite often uh, today uh, at the IETF.
1: It's possible somebody did some reprints.
0: I don't know. Yeah. Oh well, yeah. I, of course they did. Of course they did. In fact, I think yeah. it was the official. I think it was the official shirt of the ITF not too long ago that there was actually this. This was printed on a shirt for one yeah, of the right. official t-shirts. So moving forward in time from there, I mean, what uh, you so you kind of dropped out of the IEB at that point and out of the ITF circles, correct?
1: That's right. Fundamentally, I do live in academia. I've worked at MIT all my life. I've, I've only had one job. It's a very very short resume. I, I went there in '73. I'm still there. They they noticed that I'd worked there well, a couple of years ago. They noticed that I'd worked there for 50 years. That they give you your rocking chair after 25. They said, "Oh, what are you supposed to do for somebody spending for 50?" I, I got a second rocking chair. I <laughs> second rocking chair. <laughs> That's right. But but if you looked at academia and the research that was going on in the academic network community. It was very short term. It was, you look at the internet and it's got such potential and there's so many things that are wrong that it's really easy to structure a research agenda about how to fix things. And of course, if you fix things in the context of the internet, you're, you're very constrained by a lot of random details. There was this paper in which I forget what problem they're trying to solve, I, but the title of the paper was One Bit is Enough. And, and the whole point of the paper is they'd figured out how to fit this solution into one spare bit they'd found in the header of the, of the, of the packet. I forget whether they were microcoding the uh, fragmentation field or what, but anyway, the one bit was enough. I said, wait a minute, what's actually the algorithm that you want to use? And they said, well, they did the entire problem they'd solved was how to optimize this against the, the constraints of the header. And I said, well, but, and, and I was thinking at the time, okay, look, we wrote this RFC in 1991 called for the creation of IPv6 It also called for the creation of NAT, which is, you know, that's all right. And I said, okay, so we're now like 2000. What are we going to be arguing about 25 years from now? Because now we're arguing about IPv6. We called for that 25 years ago. What are we arguing about? What are we going to be arguing about in the future? So I pushed the National Science Foundation to, to say, can we get some parts of the networking community to think longer term? to get away from microcoding the header and, and so forth and just say, okay, what do you want the internet to look like in 20 years? And we gave the community the, the permission to think what we call clean slate. And, and people misunderstood. They thought the simplistic idea was we're going to forklift replacement of the internet someday. I said, no, 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 that's not what we're getting at. But I want to I free your mind from all of the constraints that arise if you say that the first problem I have to solve is to explain the migration path and just say, describe to me a network you'd like to have in 20 years. It doesn't have to look like, you know, just describe what this would look like. And let's, and let's free our minds by saying it doesn't have to fit into the IP header. So NSF funded this program called the future internet first, first called future internet design and the future internet architecture FIA. And they, they funded, I think uh, four projects out of this or five initially. And some of them were very creative. um, the one that's gotten the most traction is called name data networking. This was an idea of Van Jacobson's and and uh, it's being pushed forward by people like Lisha Zhang. The idea is packets don't have addresses in them, they have the they request information and you get the data packets back. It's completely it it's a paradigm that completely turns your thinking on its head. It's a it's a infinitely stateful packet. Instead of saying the packet fires and forgets every time it forwards a packet, the router has per packet state in it until Till the answer comes back so and, and if you're willing to commit to having per packet state in the router you can do all kinds of amazing control loops and all kinds of things like that so that was an interesting project I learned a lot I uh, actually wrote a book as a consequence of that called designing an internet and internet not the internet but in the end of the day I said okay how do we translate what we learned back into the operational internet and I concluded that in fact the the people that had done this work who were in fact academics hadn't necessarily looked at the problems that were really challenging the internet which i would say are things that nobody really wants to think about like the complexity of management security economics they still want to optimize the data plane and well you know that's that's where all the glory is to forward the packets but you know if you look at a lot of the issues about the internet today they aren't about whether we can forward packets we can forward packets real fast they do have to do with control management security economics and so so i i decided that we learned about all we could out of that project and if you want to come up to the present we can pick what we want to talk about but if you want to come up to the present i have i have wandered in and out of the Network security business. I did a lot of this in the early days of my career when we were building this multi-level secure operating system. But um, you know, I've wandered into security several times, and I and I and I confessed to a growing frustration with the fact that there are core insecurities in the public internet that we have understood for a long time. And you know, if you just look at BGP as an example, the possibility of a route hijack was identified and documented in 1982 and how is it that we are still dealing with the reality of route hijacks when the vulnerability was identified in 1982 that tells you it's not a technical problem because it was a technical problem we would have solved it right and if you look at the history of the IETF trying to deal with with adding security to bgp all the proposals that have been put forward all the all the working groups that have just disagreed and disagreed and disagreed and disagreed this comes back to this you know we reject king's president's and voting sometimes you just have to say let's take a decision and do something so so if you ask what i'm doing now i've actually wandered back into this space i'm trying to see whether it is possible to find an actionable vector. And I do think with respect to BGP there's an answer that's emerging. And the question is how do we how do we convince people it's right? It has to do with RPKI and ROAS, although you may wish to disagree with me, but but I I'm pushing to to get better data collection, uh, data better analytics. And then of course we could talk about the, all the issues with the DNS, issues with the certificate authority system, uh, DDoS attacks, and I just say look, you know, uh, who, who cares about this? So, you know, that's, that's what I'm doing right now, and that's, that's, well, that's and where I'm putting all my energy now.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's not just who, who cares about this, but who cares enough about to, t- to take the financial hit to implement something. It becomes a tragedy of the commons problem, which is also very common in the history of networking that lots of things turn out to be tragedy of the pro- commons problems. Um, IP addressing even, you know, it doesn't cost me anything to advertise a slash 24. It costs everybody else in the internet to receive the slash 24. And the cost is incrementally small enough that, uh, you know, we don't do anything about it. But the reality is it does cost something to receive a slash 24. Uh, DDoS is is quite often the same way. It doesn't cost anything incrementally to leave an open uh, or spam it doesn't cost anything incrementally to leave an open um, uh, email you know, agent out yeah. there, but for the community at large, it costs a lot, but for the owner of that system, it doesn't cost a whole lot.
1: Well, isn't this the same problem we were just, you know, David was describing, it's an economic, why would an ISP want to implement something new when it doesn't give them anything monetarily? That's exactly right. The economists have modeled the hell out of this. I mean, they understand it. It's called negative network externality. And... You know, if I if I bear the cost and you bear the benefit, then why should I do it? And there's a famous economist named Ronald Coase, and uh, he uh, I, I love I love Coase's work. If you if you ever want to read an economist, you ought to read Ronald Coase because he was capable of deeply explaining economic issues without ever writing down an equation, and I and I respect that. But, but he, he answered some basic questions like, why do firms exist? And you might say, well, isn't it obvious the answer? No, it's not. <laughs> okay. But he said something very important. He said, the market can solve any problem if all the externalities can be internalized, which is to say, if you can solve all of those externalities. Now, that if had, it was, I think that if was an if and only if, which is to say, if you cannot internalize all the externalities then you cannot expect the market to solve the problem and what that means is in the long run you're going to have regulatory intervention and the internet has lived through a period here from its its commercialization in the mid-1990s up to now where basically a lot of governments the united states taking the lead have said no we don't want to regulate this because we want to see how it grows up it should be allowed to grow up you know, like a like a you know a flower child. You know, free of constraint, and 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 people are waking up and looking at it and saying, "Ooh, that's what it grew up to be." I don't like that very much. <laughs> I think I'm, we're going to go through a transition now, like it or not, which is going to be as profound as the transition we went through when we turned off the NSF net and commercialized the internet. Which is governments are going to start trying to figure out how to impose regulatory constraints and they're not going to know what to do. They're going to do it wrong. They're going to do it inconsistently. You know, one country's going to do one thing and another country's going to do it. This is going to be an incredibly messy, painful process, but I think it's inevitable and we've got to get in there and manage it. And whenever I talk to people in the government, they're very clear. Uh, I, I was talking to a bunch of Senate and, and House staffers earlier this year, and I went through my whole rant about security, and I was flaming about this and that. And, and this woman, who was a very competent staffer, I mean, you know, well, I'm sorry, there's, I have to be careful about this, I have to be a little careful. The current administration has created a climate in which a lot of experienced Washington operatives don't want to work there. So your typical Senate staffer today is about 25 years old and they've gone to Washington and they're using it as a career step and they're young and they're ambitious. Uh, Not all of them are conservative, but they're all young. And I was talking to this woman and she basically said to me, because she'd worked in government for a while, she put it a little less bluntly than I'm putting it now, which is, well, we're basically sort of incompetent. So can't we just hope the private sector will solve this? And I said, no. And I gave her lots of reasons why. And she just sat there and she got really sad because she understood that what i was saying was true and she literally didn't know what to do and and so the answer is you have to tell them and and everybody's clear about this if you go to washington don't go to washington and say you have a problem it's not like going to your boss don't go to your boss and say you have a problem go to your boss and say you've got a problem and here's a solution right give him the answer not the question and you got to go to washington and say here's what you should do but but how can we do that if we can't even agree among ourselves so there's there's an incredibly complicated dynamic space but you know who's going into washington now it's the big commercial players okay and i think i think if you just here's here's just a, a, a particular thing to think about which is sort of a capsule if you've ever seriously read the telecommunications act of 1996 it is totally unfit for purpose it was written at a time when the goal Was to transition the telephone system from a monopoly, to finish the transition of the telephone system from a monopoly to what they hallucinated would be a competitive environment. Their conception of what it would look like was completely wrong. They thought that long distance would be a competitive market and broadband access would still be a monopoly. And in fact, long distance telephone service is not a viable business at all, it was an accident. And in fact, we do have a little bit of competition in the in the in the last mile space. So the whole law was just, they embedded a cons- a, an assumption of what the market was. Saying. They never embed in the law the assumption of what the market's going to look like. But if you look at all the conniptions that Wheeler went through, never mind whether you believe in network neutrality or not, but his attempt to use Title I, and that didn't work. It was blotted by the courts. Eventually, he had to use Title II to try to create network neutrality. And Title II was so unfit that he had to then forbear, which the law gave him the right to do, from enforcing about you know seven eighths of the of the act, uh, the sections of the act, and then of course the, the current FCC just did all that. But everybody says eventually we're going to need a new law or a new a new title. You know we're going to need a Title Seven. You know regulating the internet. So who's thinking about that today? Well, I know. That if you talk to a big company like AT&T or Comcast, they have a bunch of people in the back room saying, well, what do we want it to look like? And I know if you talk to Google, they have a bunch of people in the back room saying, well, I know what we want it to look like. Who speaks for the public interest here? It should have a voice. Okay. Who speaks for the public interest? or Or is the internet going to be What happens when google and comcast collide with each other and and you figure what fragments fly out of the collision okay i don't like that story very much
0: that's pretty much what we're getting to as it as it turns out well Dave, we're we're pretty far into this, and I think we uh, have covered our time, and I think we've covered the history really well. Um, and it was great having you on. Now, current work, where can people find what you're currently working on? If they were to go to the internet, if they were to go to the interwebs or the web, uh, <laughs> where would where would people find your current work?
1: Well, you know, I work at MIT. You can find my website at MIT. Uh, if you if you Google if you if you Google, sorry, excuse me, if you search <laughs> if you search. David Clark, MIT. Uh, yes, there are a lot of David Clarks around. If you search David Clark, MIT, you can you can find web pages where a lot of my stuff is published, and so it's it's not too hard to track it down. Uh, okay. I publish a lot of papers. Uh, I've been publishing a lot of policy papers, so those are not in traditional computer science journals. They, I publish at the telecommunications policy research conference. A lot of those papers are on SSRN. But I also have papers in places like SIGCOM and IMC. We just did a paper on BGP hijacking at IMC. I'm very pleased. My grad student got best paper award. So that was all cool.
0: Awesome.
1: And uh, so you can track me down. Just try just qualify my name with MIT. All
0: right. Excellent. And Donald, you're at me, not you, sharp. On Twitter, yeah. On Twitter. And no place else in the world that we know of. Exactly. Donald hides. It's OK. I'm Russ White. I'm at rule11.tech. And thanks for joining us for this episode of the History of Networking.